This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 145, entitled, Does the Book of Revelation Portray Jesus as God? Two Test Cases. Over the past few episodes, we have explored the elusive Book of Revelation to see how it unveils and reveals the true God and the Lamb. The book of Revelation, unfortunately, sits at one of two extremes for many Christians. Revelation is either completely ignored because it comes across as scary or too confusing to understand, or Revelation is the centerpiece of one's entire theology in attempts to master all matters of end times eschatology in the prediction of dates and times. Both of these extremes are just that, extremes. And I hope that these podcasts can help bring the book of Revelation back into a semblance of balance for our listeners. The book of Revelation was meant to be understood, comprehended, and even obeyed. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will look at two instances where some readers of the book of Revelation have concluded that Jesus is, in fact, Yahweh himself. We will first explore why it is that a Yahweh passage from the Old Testament is quoted of Jesus in the first chapter of Revelation. Second, we will look at how it is that the Lord God and Jesus are called the Alpha and the Omega. Does the book of Revelation reveal that Jesus is one and the same as Yahweh? Or are there more persuasive answers to be given as to why these two are often closely associated. Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the piercing of God is now the piercing of Jesus. We'll be looking at a passage in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. This passage reads, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. That's Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. So what we actually have in this passage is a double citation from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament. The citations are Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 at the beginning of Revelation 1-7 and Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 in the middle of Revelation 1-7. The combined use of these two passages 
Daniel 7.13 and Zechariah 12, verse 10, has already appeared in Matthew 24, verse 30, a passage that predates the book of Revelation. So Revelation is not new and innovative by combining these two texts. Now at the beginning of Revelation 1.7, when it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, this he, the subject there, according to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, is the one like a son of man, who is a human being authorized to be the recipient of God's glory, kingship, and dominion. So it's very important to understand that it is the human being who is incredibly authorized and privileged with God's kingship, glory, and dominion that is described here in Revelation 1, verse 7. But I also want to spend a lot of time looking at the problem of this passage, or the apparent problem, namely that Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 originally referred to Yahweh, and thereby Revelation 1-7 combines a Yahweh passage with a Son of Man, Jesus passage. So let's spend some time looking at Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. So this is how it reads in English translations. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. That's Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. So in the Hebrew text, what we call the Masoretic text, it says that they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And in the context of Zechariah 12 and verse 10, it is clearly Yahweh speaking. Yahweh is saying that the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will look upon him, namely Yahweh, whom they have pierced. And this also refers to an incident that, from the perspective of Zechariah chapter 12, has already taken place in the past. They will look upon me whom they have pierced, in the past tense, and they will mourn for him. So these mourners have already pierced God in some sense. Now, taking into account the genre of prophecy and the amount of poetry that appears within the biblical prophets, it is quite reasonable that the piercing referred to here is metaphorical and not literal. It is the suggestion that there is a literal piercing of God himself, which has been problematic for interpreters of Zechariah 12 throughout the ages. And there is a precedent within the Hebrew Bible for seeing acts of piercing and stabbing with a sword to be understood metaphorically. And we can see this in a passage like Proverbs 12 and verse 18. So Proverbs 12 and verse 18, which is clearly a passage of poetry, says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise 
brings healing. This Proverbs 12 and verse 18, where the person who speaks rashly or harshly is like the thrust of a sword. One might say even the piercing of a sword. So it's possible that the piercing action could be understood metaphorically in the sense of speaking harshly or rashly towards a particular person. In other words, harshly spoken words are likened to a sword piercing another. So the piercing of God likely referred to the harsh treatment of God, probably, according to the context of Zechariah, by ignoring God's prophetic utterances spoken by the prophets. We have some confirmation of this in the manner in which the translators of the Septuagint regarded the Hebrew verb for piercing, which in Zechariah 12 and verse 10 is rendered in the Greek as treated spitefully, suggesting that a literal piercing of an actual sword was not intended in Zechariah 12 verse 10. Now, how is it that a Yahweh passage from Zechariah chapter 12 has been quoted of Jesus and combined with the reference of Daniel 7's Son of Man? Are we to conclude in Revelation 1-7 that the Son of Man, that is, a human being, is Yahweh himself? Here are a few considerations that we need to take seriously when pondering such an important interpretive question. First, the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 is someone distinct from the Ancient of Days. However, this Son of Man is also authorized to share in the privileges of this Ancient of Days. Daniel 7 and verse 14 states that the Ancient of Days gave to this human Son of Man dominion, glory, and kingship. In other words, the reference to the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 would have carried with it connotations of a human being who has been the recipient of God's unique privileges and prerogatives. This human being shares in God's unique privileges. Second, the book of Revelation has already introduced the relationship between God and Jesus in the manner that indicates that God has given the revelatory experience to Jesus. We can see this in Revelation 1 verse 1, which says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. In other words, the narrative of Revelation has already laid the groundwork to prepare readers that Jesus shares in what God has given to him. This is not equating God and Jesus. It would be more appropriate 
to describe this relationship as God having shared things that formerly belonged to God alone with the risen and exalted Jesus. Third, the context of the original citation of Zechariah 12 and verse 10 is quite different from where the narrative of Revelation places it. Originally, Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 indicated post-exilic Jewish mourners who pierced Yahweh with their rejection of his prophetic words. In Revelation 1-7, however, the mourners are repentant and they are the tribes of the earth who, in the scope of Revelation, are Gentiles, not post-exilic Jews in the Second Temple period. The act of piercing in Revelation 1-7 appears to be a literal piercing, and the object of the piercing has shifted to Jesus. So, pretty much every single point of the citation has been reappropriated from Zechariah 12 and verse 10 to Revelation's own context. The subject has been changed. The emphasis on the verb is different. The object of the verb has changed. The nature of the mourning has changed. And other points as well. Now, this is actually consistent with the way in which Revelation uses its Old Testament citations. That is, by, if I were to say this quite bluntly, ripping them out of context and reusing them for new purposes that suit the narrative goals of the book of Revelation. So, it would seem that John the Seer applies a Yahweh text, Zechariah 12 and verse 10, to Jesus in Revelation 1 verse 7 because Jesus now best fits the object of the piercing and the mourning in this current context. Furthermore, God has shared his privileges, prerogatives, and even the contents of the revelatory insight with this unique human being, the Son of Man. The citing of a Yahweh passage for the Son of Man is not to say that the Son of Man is Yahweh himself, but rather it is to say that the Son of Man better fits this new context, being the recipient of God's glory, God's privileges, and God's revelation. Let's move on to our second point today, which is looking at the title Alpha and Omega. Now, the title Alpha and Omega appears three times in the book of Revelation, and I'm going to read all three of those occurrences. The first one is in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8 which is the verse that follows our previous passage. In Revelation 1, verse 8, we see, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's Revelation 1, verse 8, to where God, 
specifically the Lord God, the Almighty, is described with the title Alpha and Omega. The next occurrence of this title appears in Revelation 21. I will start in verse 5. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, I will give to the one who thirst from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 through 7, where again, God, who is our God from the perspective of the ideal readers, is described with the title Alpha and Omega. And then we have the third and final occurrence of this title in Revelation 22. I will start in verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you these things for the churches. That's Revelation 22, verses 12 through 16. For here, the title Alpha and Omega is unambiguously attributed to Jesus. Jesus himself says, I, Jesus. Behold, I am coming quickly. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Let's talk about this title, Alpha and Omega. This title is what grammarians call a merism. And a merism is a way of talking about the extent of a given subject by describing its two boundaries. For example, someone might say that he has searched high and low for a lost object. And by saying high and low, he means the extent of everything in between these two boundaries. So Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And the mirrorism of Alpha and Omega would imply everything in between. It would be like saying that someone is the A and Z for English speakers. By giving the boundaries of the first and last letters of the alphabet, the intention is that all that is in between also applies. So the most obvious question we are left with is, what does it mean when God and Jesus are described with this mirrorism of the Greek alphabet? 
one could easily observe that the Lord God, the Almighty, is portrayed with the title Alpha and Omega at the beginning of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus is portrayed with the same title at the end of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 13. This, I think, is not likely to be an accident. We have the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, and the titles appear at the beginning and the end of Revelation. Another observation is that the title Alpha and Omega are similar to other titles, like the beginning and the end, and the first and the last. In fact, if you count the number of occurrences of these three titles, you end up with seven occurrences total. And that also cannot be an accident. The employment of the titles Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, the first and the last appearing seven times, indicates a completeness within the purposes of God. That's how the number seven functions in revelatory symbolic literature like the book of Revelation. Seven indicating completeness or fullness. Now, some might argue that Jesus being called the Alpha and the Omega suggests that he has existed from the beginning. Now, while it's not clearly deducible that calling Jesus the first letter of the Greek alphabet is indicative of his preexistence, Revelation does mention the Lamb in regard to the creation of the world. In commenting about the beast from the sea, Revelation 13 and verse 8 says, quote, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life of the Lamb that has been slain from the foundation of the world. That's Revelation 13, verse 8. So, the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Clearly, not in a literal sense, but within God's plans and purposes. The Lamb's death was spoken of from the beginning. So, if we want to talk about the letter Alpha as a letter representing the pre-existence of the Lamb in the beginning, that pre-existence involves the plans of God where the Lamb was to be slain and slaughtered. And this plan was in the beginning, from the foundation of the world. That is how Revelation depicts pre-existence, within God's purposes and plans from the beginning. Now let's look a little deeper at how this title Alpha and Omega is used within its three appearances in Revelation. I'll start from the end of the list and work backwards all the way to the beginning. So when the title is used of Jesus in chapter 22 verse 13, it is preceded by an announcement that Jesus is coming and that his reward is with him in order that Jesus repays each person according to their deeds. 
then Jesus speaks of the blessing for the righteous and the punishments of the wicked, namely dealing with access to the city of New Jerusalem. This description portrays Jesus in the context of the title Alpha and Omega as the coming judge. Now when the title is used of God in chapter 21 verse 6, it is also curiously surrounded by statements of judgment. God promises to reward the water of life to those who thirst for it. And in the following verse, God promises that the faithful conquerors will receive their inheritance. And in the verse after, God speaks of the second death that awaits the unrepentant sinners. In sum, this description of God bearing the title Alpha and Omega is a description of a coming judge. Now, when we look at the first occurrence of the Alpha and the Omega title, it is used of the Lord God, the Almighty. This is in chapter 1, verse 8. And in this passage, the Lord God is also described as the one who is and who was and who is to come. When this particular title appears later in Revelation, specifically in chapter 11, the 24 elders praise the Lord God in worship by saying, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and all who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. That's Revelation 11, verses 17 through 18. This, of course, is another judgment scene. And in this passage, God is no longer the one who is and who was and who is to come. He is the one who is and who was. No longer the one who is to come because he has arrived to bring about judgment. And that is a description used of God in chapter 1, verse 8, where he is described with the title Alpha and Omega. So there is good reason to conclude that the title Alpha and Omega has much to do with one's spanning ability to act as the cosmic judge, since the judgment theme appears in each occurrence of the title within Revelation. Now, the fact that God is the cosmic judge who repays each person according to their works is not surprising. It is the reference that Jesus is described as the one who repays each person according to their deeds, which is surprising. In fact, the Old Testament regularly attributes the role of the judge who will repay each person according to their works to Yahweh, to the Lord God. But in the New Testament, however, Jesus bears this role and responsibility 
of the coming judge. Is it appropriate to conclude that God, who is the coming judge, is one and the same as Jesus, the coming judge? This would collapse the two persons into one. And Revelation's narrative regularly distinguishes God and the Lamb. So there must be a more persuasive answer to this particular question. How is it that the Lord God and Jesus are described with the prerogative of the cosmic judge? Now we do, in fact, have data in Revelation to explain how this attribution of the role of judge can be said of both God and the Lamb. So I'm going to stick specifically with the evidence that we have in the book of Revelation. First, Jesus announced that he has been allowed to share in the rulership of the Father because Jesus himself has conquered. Jesus said, To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation 3, verse 21. Jesus conquered in his death, which resulted in his resurrection and exaltation, and God exalted him to share in the Father's own throne. Second, Jesus acknowledges that he has been authorized by his Father with God's own authority. We read this in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 26, where Jesus says, To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations, to shepherd them with an iron rod, as when clay pots are shattered, even as I also received authority from my Father. That's Revelation 2, verses 26 through 28, where Jesus says that he received authority from the Father. Third, it has already been stated that the entire revelatory insight that we see in the book of Revelation originally came from God, and God gave it to Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Fourth, verification of this transfer of authority can be observed in Revelation chapter 5, where the one who is seated upon the throne holds a sealed scroll, and only the conquering lamb is worthy to take the scroll and open its contents. In other words, God finds Jesus worthy to take the revelatory secrets and to unveil them to the readers, specifically because the lamb has conquered in the Lamb's sacrificial death. So there is every reason to conclude that Jesus' role of the judge is derived from his Father. 
namely, from the Lord God. The Lord God is the true judge, but God has shared this role and prerogative with the exalted Jesus, the one who has conquered. The act of conquering indicates that Jesus' faithful life ended in martyrdom, and it was rewarded with resurrection and exaltation. Jesus being exalted indicates that he was elevated into the privileged roles given to him from God. The role of judge is not innate to Jesus, therefore, but it was rewarded to him because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and subsequent exaltation. So in sum, why is it that God, who acts as the cosmic judge, is portrayed with the Alpha and Omega title, and Jesus, who also acts as the cosmic judge, is portrayed with the Alpha and Omega title? Answer, God has shared this title, role, and privilege with the exalted Lamb. So in conclusion, we have observed that the book of Revelation has a rich and robust Christology, and the person of Jesus is deeply associated with the work of the Lord God. We first observed that a Yahweh passage from Zechariah chapter 12 was cited of the Son of Man in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. Rather than insisting that the human Son of Man is Yahweh himself, Revelation's use of Zechariah's citation drew on similar themes, namely the piercing, the mourning, and the repentance, and saw appropriate ways to reappropriate these themes for Revelation's narrative purposes. Just as those who mourned their spurring of God's prophetic words during the post-exilic Second Temple period, so too will Revelation's readers mourn their collective involvement with the act that pierced the Son of Man, leading to their repentance. By citing Zechariah 12 and verse 10, and placing the Son of Man as the object of the piercing, Revelation seeks to place the spotlight upon the authorized human Jesus, which was formerly set upon Jesus' God. Second, we observed the title Alpha and Omega is used to describe both the Lord God and Jesus. We saw that when this title was used, the most common surrounding theme was that of judgment, of one who is coming to repay each person according to their deeds, whether they are righteous or wicked. Having noted that Jesus is the recipient of God's revelation, God's authority, and God's kingship, 
it seemed prudent to conclude that God has shared the title of Alpha and Omega with the risen and exalted Jesus. And that is how Jesus came to bear that title. The depiction of Jesus taking the role of God in Yahweh citations from the Old Testament and bearing the titles of God is not a new Christological development in Revelation. The very same Christology was already prevalent in the Gospels and in the Apostle Paul. The conclusion of Matthew's Gospel has Jesus acknowledging that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, verse 20. The Apostle Paul puts this Christology in his own words. Quote, Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. End quote. That's Philippians 2, verses 9 through 10. Revelation's depiction of God sharing his privileges and prerogatives with the Son of Man is not a theology of co-equal, co-eternal, and co-essential persons. It is better described as a high human Christology, where the human Jesus is highly exalted and bestowed with God's own blessings and titles. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Join us next week as we continue to look at how the book of Revelation portrays Jesus in highly exalted terms, focusing on Jesus' appearance to John the seer. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the truths about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. You can support the podcast for free by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends on social media and through email. If you would like to donate to the podcast, you may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much to Dustin Williams for his editing and post-production of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks, be safe and take care.